Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love in my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Those are verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 144, which along with Psalm 137 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, April the 9th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're going to continue our look today in the uh, prophecy of Jeremiah, still in, 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 we're moving to the 31st ver- chapter, verses 27 to 34. We're going to continue with the story of Lazarus in John 11, verses 28 to 44, and in the epistle to the church at Rome, chapter 11, verses 25 to 36. So we see things coming towards a conclusion, and that conclusion is going to be, well, um, Good Friday and Easter. So Jeremiah is uh, is speaking to the exile community here. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. What does he mean? I'm going to put men and beasts back in the land. So that you're going to repopulate the land. You're going to have it again, and you're going to enjoy the fruit of the land, and everything will be back the way it was, even though now it's utterly ruined and destroyed, and there's neither man nor beast there. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I'll watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. So there's no punishment for the sins of the fathers on the sons and daughters. There, there's that. Everybody is responsible individually before the Lord. So it, it's not a generational punishment that's going to be meted out. And I've certainly been in some places in some healing ministries where it's, it gets really confusing because sometimes I know people who say, you know, kind of make a list. If you see any sort of commonalities of sin, like this alcoholism run through your family, does, you know, uh, multiple different things, does this is run through your family, divorce, uh, all those kinds of things. Does this tend to run in your family? And and what they want to do is identify those generational tendencies and 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 take them sort of as a curse, and break those things off in the present. Now, some of that makes some sense to me. That it's not the sins of the fathers, but it, but it's a pattern of behavior in a family system, and that makes sense to me. That we would cut that off and we would say that stops. In this generation, my parents both kind of made a similar decision. They, their parents had been alcoholics, and so both of them abstained because they wanted to break that in, in that generation. They, they said, nope, we're going to stop this. Now it's not going to be passed on. But there's something about that that's a genetic predisposition to it, and that thing needs to be hived off. And so I get that. But but everybody pays the consequences for their own actions in the same way. So, so let's say there is a generational tendency to alcoholism. Well, each person makes the decision on their own to allow that. And so you're, you're 
responsible in that way in judgment for your own sins. And that's what he's saying here is, is that I'm not going to punish people for the things their fathers did. I'm going to punish them for the things that they do. <laughs> uh, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And so we've talked about, or I have at least, (laughs) talked about what happens at Sinai at the covenant ceremony where they accept the Lord as a marriage sort of ceremony. That, that, and he says, here, I was their husband, and they broke it. They, they committed adultery. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. It's not going to be on written on tablets of stone and put in the ark. I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So how do we move to knowledge of the Lord? And he said, it's because I forgive their sin and I will remember their iniquity no more. That's who he is. When he reveals himself in that way, he says, they'll know me. They will know me personally because I will forgive their individual sins. In the gospel yesterday, remember, Jesus had not gone at the request of Mary and Martha to heal their brother Lazarus. He stayed, in fact, until he had, Lazarus had been dead four days. And then he came, and so when he came, Mary ran out to meet him, or Martha did, and Mary stayed in the house. When she had said this, she, Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and is calling for you. Jesus wants you to come. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews, who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, that her grief had overcome her, and she just wanted to be close to Lazarus. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine this week that said that his happy place, uh, that's not the words he used, um, was in in, in a particular cemetery, because that's where... All the people who constituted his family, his mother, his grandmother, and his brother, uh, were buried. And that, that he found real peace and contentment there in, in that, that he felt um, part of that family again. He's married and has his own kids, but, but he had very little family. And so this, they were all deeply, deeply important in his life. And so he goes there and, and finds that peace that, he, that is lacking in other places. And it's because he believes in the resurrection of the dead. He believes that he will see them again, but he still wants to be close to them even now. And so that's what they think, that she's going out there to weep because she's closer to her brother. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, which is exactly the same thing Martha said to him. And and it's there's two different things going on, as I said yesterday, and, and one of those is, is a statement of faith, and the other is a little bit of a rebuke. You know, that she didn't answer him directly and say, "Why didn't you come when we called you?" This wouldn't have happened if you had. No, she says it this way. She makes it a statement of faith. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with him also weeping, with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And the word that's used there is embrizomai, and embrizomai means something you'd use it typically to to. Describe a horse in extreme agitation. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 
Jesus wept. They're, they're just broken. And Jesus is broken over this as well. He's not mourning for Lazarus. He's mourning for the, the consequence of death in the world, the consequence of sin and the effect of death, the separation from those that we love. So the Jews said, see how he loved him because he was weeping. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So they, they reference the healing of the blind man and said, well, if he was able to do that, well, surely he could have done this too. In spite of the fact this is certainly a greater miracle than the, the healing of the man born blind, who the man born blind says, nobody's ever heard of anything like this before. And, and now they believe that he could have done something had he been there. He could have prevented the death because that was easier than, than healing a blind man. But now nobody has any hope. Nobody's thinking that he's going to do anything yet. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, same embrace of mine, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Does that sound familiar? Sound like his tomb. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the first one, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. You know how it works, Jesus. After three days the spirit leaves. There's no hope of, of resuscitation or being revived after the, after the soul is gone. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Huh? What do you mean by that? I mean, nobody's still nobody's thinking what's going to happen next. I mean, it, it's it's just a it feels like a non sequitur. There's going to be an odor. He said, "Didn't I, didn't I tell you if you believed you see the glory of God? Oh, you mean there's not going to be an odor? I mean, nobody's thinking resurrection. Like I said, just like nobody thought resurrection with Jesus. They're looking for him and they want to know what you've done with the body. Nobody believes that he was resurrected. They went in and they're looking. Eh. So. <clears throat> They took away the stone, though, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So what he's saying is, is, is that I'm praying largely so that they'll know I'm praying. He, he's not trying to make a big deal out of it. He's not doing the thing that he says not to do which is to pray in public because you've already received your reward. That way he's, uh, no, here what he's saying is, is that, that I, I have to do this. I have to pray and thank you for hearing me as though he were already restored from the dead. I have to do this so that they'll know I don't do it of my own accord, that it's, that it's you who does these things. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I mean, you can just imagine this, this, this scene at the grave where Jesus is standing there and he's just prayed and he's just had these conversations with these people. And then in a loud voice, I mean, what, what John's telling us, he cried out with a loud voice. What he's telling us is it scared us to death. <laughs> that, that, that after all, Jesus very calmly says, oh, you know, roll away the stone. And, and then he, he yells, Lazarus come out. And, and people have, have made the point in the comment that, that it's interesting that he calls Lazarus by name because typically they would bury multiple people in one tomb. So it's sort of like a mausoleum. So they, they've, there would be others probably in that tomb. And so they make the point that he calls him by name in order that all the others not come out too because he was capable of calling out all the dead. The man who had died it's interesting. I don't know why John doesn't say Lazarus came out. Nope. The man who had died. He, it's a new man. 
It's now the man who lives. So to say Lazarus came out, it, it loses effect, if you say it that way. The man who had died came out has a much greater impact than Lazarus came out. No, the man who had died came out. And his feet and his hands were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind them and let him go. It's interesting that John chooses to, to tell us about the, the grave cloths. There's no need typically for him to do that because people would have known this thing. But John does it to give us a little bit of a premonition of what's to come. He tells us about the grave cloths here because he's going to tell us about other grave cloths at a different story that we tell next week on Easter. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Begs the question, right? Who unbound Jesus? It's amazing. It's an absolutely amazing way of telling this story in such a way that it points ahead to the greater story, even than this story. It's a, it's a wonderful telling, but, it, but it, here we get uh, the, the, the ape, what looks to be the apex of Jesus' ministry. And we know later that they want to kill Lazarus because he is a living symbol of Jesus' power. He is a testimony to the man who had lived among them, so they wanted to kill him because that way they could, they could eradicate some of the evidence and so the thought is, is that, that John writes his gospel after Lazarus has died again, because now it's safe to mention Lazarus in a way that the other gospel writers couldn't without putting undue pressure on Lazarus. So in the epistle, remember Paul's um, argument here is, is yesterday was that, that you Gentiles get into the covenant because of the disobedience and the lack of faith and belief. <clears throat> from the original covenant partners. And so he's saying, don't be, don't be proud of that because you could fall too. He, so he begins here, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so Paul's goal was to get in as many Gentiles as he, as he possibly could and to spread the gospel as far as he proper, possibly could. But at the same time, he would go back and revisit those places, either physically or in his letters, to make sure they stayed in the faith. He didn't, he didn't care about just getting converts. He wanted people who remained steadfast in their faith. He said, in, in this way, this partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, in this way Israel will be saved, as it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. They hate the gospel at this point. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So God entered the covenant with the fathers, and then it gets carried forward and renewed with the nation. But his covenant proper is with the children of Abraham because of Abraham. But it's for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So in other words, if he's ever made a covenant with anybody, that covenant is never-ending because it relies on his faithfulness. <clears throat> Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they 
have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he have mercy on all. And it's at this place where his argument of chapter 1 through right here finally pulls itself into one thing. He has convicted all of sin, but now what he says is God has consigned all to disobedience in the same way that God says to the, to the exiles in Babylon, you're there because I put you there. It was my will that you go there as a punishment for your sins. So now, Paul says, God has consigned all, Jews and Gentiles alike, to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. In other words, he didn't, he didn't set up a bunch of righteous people and then have mercy on some other people. No, he's had mercy on all. And the only way to get there, to understand mercy and grace, is to understand that you've been disobedient and you don't deserve any of that. You deserve only punishment and you deserve only death. And so now he's finished his argument proper and he, and he goes from theology the knowledge of God, the teaching of the knowledge of God, to doxology, the praise of God, which is the only thing that's possible if you're doing it right. It should always lead. Anytime you do thinking about God and understanding about God, that should lead you to praise of God, and that's exactly what it does. So he, he concludes his argument, and then he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And the people all said, Amen.